Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray, just as we've sung, that your Spirit would cause us uh, to grow in our hunger to live for you and to do your will. We come before you now to seek after you, to seek your will for your church. We thank you, Lord, for this time. And not only is it a time of individual worship, but it is a corporate worship. Lord, may your word go forth and speak to us not only individually, but also us as a church, so that we together, in cooperation in this, with our, in this oneness that we have in Christ, may together pursue and encourage one another to pursue your will for your church. Use your scriptures now to sanctify and shape and mold this church to be the kind of church which you have called us to be. We thank you, Lord, for this church. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We pray that we would see that all these, all these things which you have blessed us with come together in an act of worship as your word is proclaimed and your people respond in submission and obedience to your will that we might not live for ourselves, but that we might live for you as your church to accomplish your purposes in this world until you bring us home. Lord, we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Please sit down and have a seat. <clears throat> so glad to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me again to the book of Acts this morning, the book of Acts. Well, um, this being the first month of the year, we always go through uh, what we call the mission, vision, values of SF Bible. We kind of just, it's always a refresher for us every year so that we as a church are reminded why the Lord has us here. What is God calling us to do and why God is calling us to be here? And uh, so uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 5 this morning. Acts 13, 1 to 5. Now, some of you may know, I look around the room, uh, maybe, uh, maybe a handful of you, perhaps, but some of you may be aware that this year is a significant year. It's a milestone year for SF Bible. It is our 60th anniversary. 60th anniversary. I know the majority of this room have not even lived 60 years. So that's really amazing that this church has been serving in the community of San Francisco, in the city of San Francisco, for 60 years. And some of you, as I look around the room, I know have been there from the very beginning. And we rejoice in you. We rejoice that you've been here and work in the work. Some of you are for many, many years as well. And we just praise God for the, what the Lord has, how the Lord has used you, used this church to bless and build up the lives of many in this city. I know I am one of the lives who were blessed because of this church. Not only the church's impact here in the city, but it's, this, is church, this church's impact around the world. Reaching even the, you know, the immigrant kind of inner city neighborhood of Seattle where this gangster wannabe came to know Jesus Christ because of the ministry of this church. Praise God. And, that's, and there's lots of stories like that, tons of them. And as we think about it, and so hopefully we get the chance to hear and tell some of those stories this year on our 60th anniversary, uh, but that'll leave that for special events to help us plan through some of those things. Well, some of us here are, are older. Some of us here uh, have uh, more years 
behind us in this life than ahead. Nevertheless, we as a church do not lose sight of what God has called us to do. We do not lose sight of while we have life and breath, what are we going to do as part of this church? What is our mission and what is our vision? As you know, we, last week we covered our, the mission of SF Bible. The mission of this church is really the same mission of every church, local church. It may state a little differently, but essentially we state our mission statement as making disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. We are all, as churches of Jesus Christ, try, striving to follow great, Christ's great commission to make disciples of all the nations. But this week, we want to focus a little bit on our vision what is SF Bible's vision? And when we ask that, we've got to ask her, what is a vision? When we hear vision, we think in terms of biblical revelation, like a, a visual revelation from God, a, dream, a waking dream, maybe a dream that's, oh, this is thus saith the Lord. But that's not what we mean when we say vision of SF Bible. Or this is no special revelation. In fact, our vision statement is really a man-made written phrase. It's, it's not ordained by, it's not ordained, it's not inspired it is something what we as a church aim to be. And for a definition of vision, according to one Dr. Aubrey Malfurs, who's a senior professor of leadership and pastoral ministry at Dallas Theological Seminary, he defined vision as a clear, challenging picture of the future of the ministry as you believe that it can be and must be. Okay? That's how he defines it. And I just remembered, I've got to slap up this, uh, this keynote for us. There we go. So vision is really what, as we go about doing what God calls us to do, what is it that we envision for the future of this church? What do we envision that God would have us become as we fulfill our mission? And while the mission of a church generally does not change, it may change as we become more better understanding of what Scripture teaches, but the vision of a church, that, change, that can change over time, Right? It changes over time depending upon the people that we have, the time that we exist, the location of the church body, as well as the resources of a congregation. And so here at Essa Bible, a couple years, maybe a decade a year ago, we wrote down what we believe is a good vision statement for us as a church. And this is what it reads. The vision of Essa Bible is to become a training center that equips disciples to serve the Lord in the local church and in the community for the purpose of developing and sending out future leaders, missionaries, and church planters. That is our vision statement. Now, that's a, um, whereas most of us, I hope, have memorized our purpose, uh, our mission statement, I don't think any of us, myself included, have memorized our vision statement. So I'm going to simplify it for you today. Our vision of the Bible is this, that we would simply become a training and sending center as we make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. We hope that as the Bible, just in light of who we are, where we're at, the maturity of the church, the resources of the church, and all the, and the various, the, even the location of this church in our, in our nation, in our world, that, Christ has, that we believe that Christ would prepare this church to become a training and sending center for Christ's church. And we see this exemplified in a particular church in the book of Acts, in our pastor today. And it is the church of Antioch. And the church of Antioch, we're going to learn more about it today. But a little background about the book of Acts before we touch on the book church of Antioch. 
Acts records for us the growth of the early church. It shows us how the early church, after Jesus' ascension to heaven, basically how it grew. And uh, sometimes they call it the Acts of the Apostles, but that's really a misnomer. It's not the accurate title of the book. It's not really the Acts of the Apostles. It's, it is what they, the apostles are involved. It's true. But if we look throughout the book, the emphasis of the book is that it's really the act of the Holy Spirit. And we can trace this whole theme of the Holy Spirit's work and activity in the life of the early church and causing it to grow. And that same Holy Spirit is at work in this church, has been at work in this church, causing us to grow, and he will continue to cause us to grow as he works in us. We see, and it starts all the way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus, before he said it, said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's Jesus, basically a restatement of the, of the Great Commission. But he says, but before that, they need the Holy Spirit. And surely enough, a few days, uh, a few, many, several days later, on the day of Pentecost, what happened? The Holy Spirit came down. He came down upon the, the church that was gathered in Jerusalem and the church began there. And then from that point on in the book of Acts, we see the gospel spread as the church becomes empowered to be witnesses and to declare to people the word of God and the, and the truth about Christ and his death and resurrection for our sins. By Acts chapter 10, the gospel, which had been primarily limited to Jewish background for people, where the church was mostly Jewish, begins to spread, of all things, to Gentiles, to Greeks. And it was spread through Peter's, it was informed to uh, the apostles through the vision that Peter received. That's a real biblical vision. And then in Acts chapter 11, we learn of this church in Antioch. Antioch, we'll we'll learn more about the details of that uh, in, in the sermon. And then that church becomes the first church where there are a significant number of Gentiles within the church of Christ. And that was just a radical thing because, you know, the church, the early church was predominantly a Jewish faith. It was the fulfillment, really, of the Jewish faith. The search for the Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. This church of Antioch, however, from this very beginning, Though it was so, it was a unique, had a unique role, a unique place. It was especially, it stood stood out because it looked, always looked beyond itself. When the Jerusalem church needed relief because of a famine that was coming, Antioch sent a contribution to the church, to the church in Jerusalem. Now in chapter 13, which we arrive at today, we see the church of Antioch again going the next step. They, they not sent their money, they sent their physical, uh, physical contributions, and then they started sending their people. We see them sending out their own people for the sake of others. And this will ex- reveal an example, a pattern for the Church of Christ to imitate, and I hope they will encourage us in our vision as we pursue making disciples of Jesus Christ. Now this is, a, I want to again just encourage all of you, uh, you are you don't take what was said here just simply because I say it, but that you look in the scriptures and be like Brian. So I'm preaching what's called narrative text, and so there's always that kind of basic hermeneutical kind of rule. Narrative is not necessarily normative. 
Narrative is not necessarily normative. That is, just because that's what happens in the narration, doesn't, you cannot assume that that's going to be always true. And so the purpose as we preach through narratives, we always want to try to find what are the universal principles here? What are principles here in this text that are true for every church throughout history? And it will be confirmed for us by other passages in scriptures. And we're going to hopefully I'll bring some of that out. And we'll see the repetition of it in the life of the early church as well. And we see it very practically in the life of this church too. So just going to just encourage you to be like the Breens. Go home and check it out for yourself. I want you to be convinced of this, especially as a church. Because if you're going to do this work, don't do it because I tell you to do it. Do this. Be a partner with us in the work of making disciples to accomplish this vision of being a training and sending center because you believe this is what scriptures Scripture reveals, Scripture reflects, okay? That's why I want you to be on board because the Lord is working in us, not because, well, the boss, you know, this little boss, B, little B, said, hey, yeah, this, this is what we need to do. No, let's, let's do it because God wants us to do this. All right, so with that said, our outlines can be pretty simple today. Four points, four observations from the church in Antioch. You know, look it up. And this is a practical outline, by the way. It's very practical. I'm, I'm preaching with a little bit of more, a little more application that encouraged this church, SF Bible, to be a disciple-making church that trains and sends out people for the building of Christ's church. Now, we're not here just for ourselves. We're not here for ourselves. We're not just here so I can grow close to the Lord. It's a byproduct of worshiping here. But we're, we're here because God has called us. God has put us together for a purpose. And that is to make disciples. And hopefully, as we make disciples, we can be like Antioch and train and send out people for the greater good of Christ's church. So our first observation that we're going to look at today, we find in verse 1, and that is we learn this principle, this observation, a disciple-making church multiplies teachers. Multiplies teachers. We read in verse 1 of chapter 13. Now there were at Antioch, and the church that was there, prophets, and teachers, Barnabas, and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is, I'm going to spend a little bit of time here because I want to give you the background of the church and the city of Antioch. The city of Antioch is, uh, was located in ancient Syria. It was, uh, and it's now a part of modern-day Turkey. If you ever look at a map of Turkey, in the far southeast corner, this Turkey just kind of lives a little hook at the end, kind of reaches into the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. There is basically this region uh, where Antioch uh, once stood. Antio- the ancient Antioch no longer exists. It's, it's now ruins. It's ceased, uh, died out around the 1500s. But the city was founded in 300 B.C. by the Seleucid Empire. That's the Greeks. And basically, it, ser- it, it served as its capital, the Seleucid Empire, until eventually the Romans took control. And that was about 60-something, 60, 60 B.C. or so, around that. And by that time, when the Roman Empire took over, the city of Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And that's significant, right? Third largest behind Rome and behind Alexandria. So this was no little tiny city. This was a major significant city. It was like a San Francisco, right? When you come to, when you come to Seattle, I came from Seattle, so I know. San Francisco, if you're here, is a world-class city. Oh, yeah, there's a, it's lost a little shine, but it is still a world-class city. It has profound impact on our world, you, for good or for bad. It does. It has a profound impact. It's like, you know, D.C. 
Los Angeles and San Francisco, New York, throwing that in too. Boston too, maybe. But San Francisco is like this. It's like this is, Antioch is like that kind of city. It was a cosmopolitan city. All sorts of people came through this city. It was a home to a significant population of both Gentiles, it was founded by Greeks, but also of Jews. A significant Jewish population moved up to Antioch for business and such. They were basically the merchant class. And as such, it's no surprise that the church reflected its city. Whereas, you remember the church in Jerusalem? 3,000 souls came to Christ in that, that first day, composed practically all Jewish background believers, right? They were, they were Jewish. They were Jewish people gathered for the, 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 uh, the Passover. And they came to Christ. But the church in Antioch was different. We see how it was different if you see how it began in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 21. We read of this, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. See, we remember that Stephen got martyred in Acts chapter 8, and there was a persecution that accompanied that time. And these Jewish background believers were fled. They fled, and they fled for their lives. They wanted to live, and so they fled because they spread out to different places, to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and even to Antioch. But when they spread, notice what they were, they brought the gospel with them, and they were speaking the word of God to no one except to Jews alone. So the majority of them were just speaking to Jewish people because they were thinking, well, I'm Jewish, so I'm going to get, this is really a, a, the fulfillment of Judaism, I'm going to tell it to Jews. But verse 20, notice, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus of all things, there were some radicals among their midst. Radicals who, they were Jews. They were part of that. Those who were scattered because of the persecution. They had probably been raised. They were raised from, in Cyprus, Cyrene. So they had a Gentile background. They were Hellenistic Jews. They had a Greek background, though they were Jewish in their faith. And they traveled to Antioch. But because they were raised in a setting where they were used to Jews and Gentiles working together or living together and interacting with one another, they were not afraid to share their faith with those across the street, in their neighborhoods, in the marketplaces, the Greeks and the Jews that were there. And they, they boldly shared. They shared it with Greeks also. And what were they sharing? The very same message that every church of Jesus Christ has been proclaiming, that the making disciples begins with, and that is proclaiming Christ. How Jesus Christ came the Son of God came and died on the cross for our sins, according to the Scripture. And on the third day, he rose from the grave, also according to the Scriptures, so that whoever believes and puts their faith in Christ, repents from their sin and trusts in Christ, in his work on the cross and who he is, can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life and a peace with God, a relationship with God. And more than that, it's not just a salvation, forgiveness, but it is a purpose to be called to be part of the church of Christ, left on earth to accomplish Christ's and God's will. That was the church. This was the church, and the, the hand of the Lord was with them. Large number who believed turned to the Lord. The Antioch church was a unique church in that day, a leading church because it was composed of Jews and Gentiles. And of course, when the church of Jerusalem heard this, this was like, that's radical. These guys have gone, maybe they were concerned, they had, had they gone too far? 
So they sent a man named Barnabas, as we see this uh, back in Acts 11, to check it out. Barnabas went to check it out, and when he saw the grace of God at work, he, he decided, this, man, this is God at work here, and he decided to stick there. And he stayed there, and he taught them there. He encouraged the church there, and the church grew, and it kept growing. People kept hearing about Jesus. People kept getting saved, and he realized that he couldn't do it alone. Or maybe there was a few others, but it wasn't enough to teach the people. So he went to get help. We pick up in Acts 11, 25, 26, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's a neat little thing, a little note there. The first time the followers of Christ are called Christians is in the church of Antioch, not in the church of Jerusalem, but in the church of Antioch. And because Barnabas brought Saul of Tarsus, remember the Jerusalem church was afraid of Saul, rightly so, because Saul was going around trying to persecute them not too long ago. But he had come to Christ, and Barnabas saw and saw the potential for God's kingdom, to be used for God's kingdom. And he went and grabbed Saul, and he brought him along to Antioch, and together they taught the people. They made disciples. They proclaimed Jesus Christ. And so we look at that. We look again back at verse 1. With that kind of background, look again back at verse 1. There in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Some believe that prophets and teachers really were the same group of people. It's just kind of like uh, two words, the same person, same type of people. Uh, but when we study this word prophets and we study the word teachers, we, throughout the, in the New, particular New Testament, uh, including the Old Testament even, they're really two distinct offices, two distinct gifts, two distinct offices in the church. And now, some people were gifted as prophets and teachers, and a lot of times they were apostles. But these two gifts and offices are distinct. For prophets, when you think about prophets, it, don't think preachers. Don't think what I am. I'm not a prophet. A prophet, biblically, prophet, you got to think about, you just think of all the prophets just in the Old Testament. They're not, they are prophets who would speak New revelation from God, correct? They would say, whatever they would speak would be, thus saith the Lord, because God would give them revelation and they would speak it. You know, as a preacher, I am not a prophet. Whatever comes out of my mouth may not necessarily be the word of God. The only time I would dare say, thus saith the Lord, is when I'm actually reading the scripture. Thus saith the Lord. What I am is a teacher. I am a teacher, and the other groups of people in the church, there were teachers. Teachers in the scriptures, those who are gifted as teachers, were those basically who are called by God, gifted by God, to explain and communicate the word of God that has already been revealed, either in the scriptures or truths of God that have been revealed from Christ and his apostles. And we see this distinction later on in the book of Ephesians. In fact, when he writes, and he, that is Christ, gave to the church some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And there we see pastors and teachers are really the same, the same group by the the grammatical construction there. But they're distinct from prophets. Prophets give new revelation. Teachers will encourage and communicate and explain the existing revelation from God. So in that church, we see that there were prophets and teachers. Christ had provided for the church in Antioch exactly what they needed. Why did they need? We can understand why they need teachers. Why do they need prophets? 
Because remember, the scripture was not complete yet, right? And so they needed the rest of the the rest of the New Testament scripture. And so prophets came into place where they would reveal God's will to the people. These prophets and teachers, these leaders were the leaders of Christ's church in Antioch. They were the lead disciple makers, if you will. And if you notice, just looking at their names, we we know some of them really well, some of them we don't. They reflected a diversity of backgrounds. Again, we looked at last week how the, uh, the church, as we make disciples, we will see a diversity in the church. And we see that here in the church in Antioch. Barnabas and Saul were, were both Jews, but they were Jews who were raised in, Gentile, in the Gentile world, or having been raised in Cyprus and Tarsus, respectively. Uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, and uh, as well as Lucius of Cyrene, were probably from Africa, northern Africa, Cyrene being from northern Africa. Lastly, Manaean was of, of royal heritage. Uh, he was uh, someone who had been raised, according to this text here, is that he was raised in the court of Herod the Tetrarch. And you don't remember who Herod the Tetrarch are. That was Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, remember, was the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. So here's this guy in the church who's a teacher and preacher, but this guy has a notorious background. He associated with people like Herod Antipas. There was probably, it could have easily been so distrust of him. But we see that the church of Antioch was a church that saw the power of God work for not only to save people who were part of the royal court of Herod Antipas, like Manan, but also people who were persecutors of the church, like Saul, right? God worked, God chooses to work and raise up teachers from all sorts of the diversity of different people in the church. These men were raised up by the Holy Spirit to lead in making disciples of Christ in the church. So we note again the pattern that we see here, a pattern that we've reflected in this verse, that a growing disciple-making church will inevitably multiply teachers. It's going to multiply teachers. There's going to be teachers that are reproduced in the church. God's going to raise them up. He might bring them from without, but he may also raise them from within. And we need, why is this, and this is necessary because, well, that's what is heavily involved in making disciples, right? Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them. So when we make disciples, we're, we're going to be teaching. In fact, all of us who are called to be disciple makers are called to teach. We're called to explain and communicate what Christ's word says to others. But among all of us who teach, God has gifted some to be a gifted teachers. They will usually become, they, they will, when you hear them teach, they're especially gifted, they're especially effective. They explain things in a way that people understand very readily. And God raises up those to be examples for the flock, to be a particular encouragement to the flock to teach the word of God. Antioch, the church in Antioch, God raised up men like Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manan, and Saul. But SF Bible has also had teachers whom Christ has raised up, has it not? I could just list for you some of the, the, the multitude of pastors that we have here. But there's more than them. There's also men like Albert, Bill, Dale, Stan, Brian, Sam, Benny, and Johnson are lay elders. But I don't have to stop there because there's more, right? There's Jimmy, Albert, Dennis, Craig, Mike, LaVon, Joseph, Howard, Ed, Ming, Brian. 
are adult Sunday school class teachers. But there's more, isn't there? I could go on to our Friday night fellowships and list you their names. I can go to your, our children's ministries and list you all the names of those teachers. This church has been blessed by the Holy Spirit because he has raised up in this church, multiplied teachers of God's word. By the grace of God, and by the same grace of God, he will continue to do so as we make disciples. We're going to trust the Lord's, Lord's going to multiply teachers. And this is part of our vision. This is what leads into our vision, is that we want to be a training center that raises up the next generation of teachers and missionaries and leaders of Christ's church. We believe that this is reflected in Scripture. We're going to, the church that grows is going to be eventually a church that multiplies teachers, at least as long as the Lord will use us in this way. Secondly, then, we move on to our second observation. A disciple-making church seeks the Lord's will. A disciple-making church seeks the Lord's will. Look at verse 2 with me. While they, those the prophets and teachers, were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, the prophets and teachers of, in, of the church in Antioch, they were busily, as it says they were involved in ministering to the Lord. Now, it's interesting. That word ministering is used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, of, to describe the service performed by the priests and Levites in the temple. Now, of course, in the church of Jesus Christ, because we have a great high priest who has one, offered one great once-for-all sacrifice, these prophets teach you they don't have to offer any animal sacrifices on our behalf anymore, right? See Hebrews. So what service then do these teachers offer, perform? How do they minister to the Lord? In their ministry to the Lord, they teach and proclaim the word of Christ to the church and to the community. And that's what they do. That's the primary service which they offer. But in addition to teaching, you notice they also fasted. They were ministering to it and they were fasting. They were praying. Fasting, of course, is that spiritual discipline of foregoing food or water temporarily to focus on intense prayer to the Lord. And usually when we when believers fasted, it was to seek the Lord in a in an urgent situation, seeking because they needed either help or because they wanted to seek his direction on what to do. And you kind of think, well, why does the church fasting at this time? Is it just because it's a spiritual discipline makes them more godly? As, you know, no. You can, but if, you put your, if we put ourselves in, the, the foot, uh, in their place, we can probably imagine what's happening because everything is new for this church in Antioch. You got to keep in mind, this is a brand new word. This is... Things are happening that had not even happened in the church in Jerusalem. And so they're, they're seeing this like, God is saving Gentiles? Jews and Gentiles are together in the church? What is happening here? For any Jewish background believer, their mind, if they know their scriptures, which they did oftentimes, they were thinking, is this the kingdom? Is the kingdom coming? Is this the kingdom of God? Because we know in other prophecies that when the kingdom comes, the nations are going to come, and they're going to come, and they're going to worship, join Israel in worship of the Lord. And that's what we're seeing here. 
Of course, they, they already had Acts, just uh, even heard of what happened in Acts chapter 2, right? Of the people prophesying in fulfillment of Joel. And they, oh man, is this the kingdom? And so there's just great anticipation about what the Lord is doing there. What, what does this all mean? And what does Jesus want us to do with this growing church? You know, because, you know, with, along with the kingdom, there's going to be a destruction of enemies. There's going to be a rising of a king. Is Jesus going to come back? Are we going to get, get all, maybe some of them were falling back into the militant idea of the kingdom, say, do we need to t- pick up arms and, and start fighting? You never know, right? So they're searching, they're seeking the Lord, the Holy Spirit for answers. And the Holy Spirit spoke to them, most likely through one of the prophets that were there. That seems the most reasonable. And the Spirit spoke to them and said, this is what I want you to do. This is why I brought you here together. This is why, I, this is why there's a, your church is a uniquely situated. This is what you are called to in this place, in this time. I want you to set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. God wanted the church in Antioch to set apart for the Lord two of their prophets and teachers. Two of them, Barnabas and Saul. They were to set them apart, put them aside, devote them, dedicate them for a new work that God was calling them to do. The wording here is sort of reminiscent even of God, God's sending of Abraham. When he called Abraham in Genesis 12, he told Abraham, go to the land which I will show you. Abraham didn't know where he was going to go, but he called and Abraham answered. Here, Barnabas and Saul don't know exactly where they're going to go. It doesn't say where they're going to go. But there's a work that God has called them to do, and they answer. This work that they're called to do is not just any other work. It's not just feeding the widows, which would involve, remember in Acts chapter 6, where the whole church got together, selected individuals to serve. This was a unique work because we see how God, it was God who chose. God chose these two. He specifically named them by name. Barnabas and Saul, Ray and Roger, you know, or choose two names. That's real specific. God wanted to send these two men to another work. In their faith, in the church's faithful service and the prayerful seeking of the church, the Lord made known his will for the church in Antioch. And they understood, this church in Antioch, because they were seeking God's will, they understood that they didn't exist for themselves. They didn't just say, oh, we're saved, we're happy, oh, let's just go along and live our lives. Right? They could have done that. They probably, I'm sure they did live their lives, but they didn't just rest that they got salvation, and, and that's good. They knew that God wanted them, brought them together for a purpose, to make disciples, but even their unique situation, to do something that God wants them to do. What does God want them to do? And I think it's a healthy question sometimes to ask, what does God want as a Bible to do? Why has God brought you here in this church at this time? Why has he brought all of us here? Why has he brought you with your variety of backgrounds? I'm so thankful for every one of you because you add to the the work which the Lord has called us here to do. Some of you can do a lot because you're young. Some of you cannot do as much because you're a little older and a little tired and weary. But nevertheless, together, God has called us to do a work. There is something which God wants us to do, and we need to constantly, continually be seeking the Lord's will for what he wants us to do.
You know, the same, and the same, the same principle that was the same characteristic that Antioch is a, true for us at Bible. We do not exist for ourselves, do we? We don't exist for us. We don't live for ourselves. We live for Christ. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. It's a great parallel, just reference, cross-reference. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, describes this, for the love of Christ controls us. It's because he knows that Christ loved us. Christ's love for us controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's, that should be true of us. We know that we don't live for ourselves. Okay, we, we cannot live for ourselves. God saved you, you not to live for yourself, but to live for the Lord who died for us, right? Amen? Yeah, this is where you, know, you can say amen, yeah. You know, I know we're not all, we're not all there yet, okay, uh, myself included, but I hope we, that's where we want to be, right? Yes, I want to live for Christ. That's why Christ saved me, and that's why he left me here. That's why I'm not dead. Everything else he, he could do in my life, he could do in heaven much easier. But he wants to leave us here because there's something he wants us to do here, not only individually, but as a church, We can trust as a church, we're going to make, as we make disciples and prayerfully seek the Lord's will, we can trust that the Lord will make his, known, his will known to this church. He's not going to speak through prophecy because there's no more prophecy, no more uh, uh, gift of prophecy in the church, but he will speak through his word, right? He's going to speak as we study God's word. What does God want us to do? He will speak through the circumstances that he ordains, you know, let's just say a building down the street get opens up, for instance. We might ask ourselves, well, that's, that's an interesting circumstance. Does the Lord want us to maybe acquire that building so that we can further the ministry of this church? That's circumstances that are ordained. Sometimes it will also confirm for us his will through the consensus of the elders of this church, right? Those are the spiritual leaders, and there needs to be consensus, unanimity, ideally, but consensus is what we always need to have at the bare minimum. The consensus of the leadership of these the elders, these godly men whom Christ has set apart to shepherd us. For as the Bible is Christ's church, and we exist to do Christ's will. Let us, will you, as a church, as members of this church, join with me in prayerfully seeking that God would that God would enable us to, to do his revealed will, God's scripture, and trust in him to lead us to accomplish. His sovereign will that may not be revealed in Scripture. This leads us, of course, to our third observation in the text. The disciple making church sends out her own. It sends out her own. Verse 3 and 4 we read, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. The Spirit had made known to the church of his will to set apart Barnabas and Saul for a special work, right? And so how did the church respond? Well, those, they responded in prayerful obedience. Notice they, they were fasting and praying. That's how they came to know the, Lord, will, the will of the Lord. But now they, they fasted and prayed again, it says. When they fast, had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them. They prayed for the Lord, perhaps, to confirm his will. But more likely, they prayed for the Lord to prepare the way for these two men. 
They responded and they said, prepare the way for these men. We want, and they laid hands on them after prayer. Some see in this laying on of hands as a, as a kind of an example of an ordination service. We had ordination service last couple of years uh, with our young pastors, and hopefully this year we'll have another one. But I don't, think, I don't believe this is an ordination service. What we see here is really the laying on of hands was a, was, is also used as a sign of one's identification. And particularly in this case, it's the church's identification with what Barnabas and Saul were about to undertake. We see this because we remember the Israelite worshipers, when they, as they offered, brought their sacrifice to the temple, what would they do before they offered up the sacrifice, before the animal was killed? They would lay their hands on their sacrifice. And they lay their hands on the sacrifice as a symbol of their identification with the animal who would die in their place. That animal represented them. And so in the church, when they prayed for these men, they prayed, they laid their hands on them. They were sending them out. Yes, it was they who were going, but these two men were representative with the church of the church of Antioch. They were sent out not just by God, but they were sent out by the church. And that's what we see here in verse 3. The church affirmed in sending out these two. They, they were the ones who sent them out. But then notice the balance. Verse 4. The church sent them out, right? Yes. But verse 4 tells us being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also is sent out. See, the, ultimately, whatever the church does that is good is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't cause us to sin, but the Holy Spirit leads us to do that which is right. And the Holy Spirit's the one who's ultimately sending these men out, and he does so in the church. We observe then that as the church makes disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to lead a church at times to send out our own people to other works for the Lord. And over the history of the church, we've done that. And I, admittedly, as a pastor, and, and the, I think even as a church, we don't like to lose people, do we? When someone leaves a church, it's like, oh, we always feel, we feel, we feel sad. And I, I know I felt it a lot more, especially when I was younger, but I still feel it today. Though I, I, it's a little different now for me when people leave. When I uh, when younger, I would think, oh, it's, you know, I feel just wounded. Like, is it personal? I take it personally. Like, something about me, isn't it? You know, is it because I'm the bad pastor or something like that? I would take it personal. But now, I, when I when people leave, I, I feel like I feel I feel sad. But I feel sad like a like a parent who watches their grown kid pack up their things and move away. And in a sense, you know that it's bittersweet because you know, well. It's actually good that they move away. They grow up in my house. It's not good. But eventually, it's the natural thing. It's the good thing. They will expand, and they need to start their own family eventually. And that's the same for the church. The church is a family, is it not? And we've had, we, have a, we have so many of you here with us, but it will be our experience to send some of our young ones away. As painful as that thought comes to my mind, it is what is healthy in a growing, disciple-making church. And not only do we send them out officially, but sometimes the Lord himself will lead people to leave a church, right? Maybe some of you who came here were led by to leave another church somewhere else. And that pastor that you left, they probably were, oh, you know, they were crying too and hurt. But in the providence of God and the power of those who are the Holy Spirit is ultimately people who moves people from one church to another. 
I and along with the elders of this church understand this. We understand that God is going to lead some to other churches, and that's inevitable. And we believe that God does so, unless it's some unbiblical reason. Even unbiblical, God is in control of that. But God will lead people to do so because in the providence and sovereign will of God, we believe that he wants someone else elsewhere in another church. That in some way, he needs those people in other churches. You know, I look at this church, I see an overabundance of richness, of gifted leaders. If you were in any, any other church, other churches, you would be leaders there. I, I know it easily. You'd be elders. Many of you would be elders and shepherds of those church. But here you're, you're serving in smaller roles that, you know, that your gifted is probably is, you know, ready to allow you to serve in other ways. And sometimes people leave because they, they have a desire. I want to be more involved in, in teaching, and I don't have the opportunity here. I'm going to go somewhere else, and they do that. And the Lord brings people to other churches because he needs them there. And some, just as some of you have been brought here because the Lord knows that we need you. We need the giftedness you bring, the, the background that you bring, different, uh, the, the, the skills that you have that you bring, the, the experiences for you come and you enrich us, this church, so we might become more of the church that Christ wants to be. So we know that we, we are going to be a church as we just make disciples are going to send out our own at some point. And as we continue making disciples then and seek God's will, we will see our role then of preparing, training others who will be sent out to other churches around the world. You know, and just when I think about this truth, I just can't help but think about my own life, how this church at one point sent out a couple to be a, to pastor a, a church, uh, the husband to pastor a church along with his wife in Seattle. And there uh, I got saved. If you decide to say, no, 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 you need to stay here. Don't, don't leave. Stay here. I might not have ever gotten saved. You see? Well, you know, God would save me if, if I was elect, if I'm elect. So but nevertheless, the, in the will of God, he did that so that eventually that church Send me here. So that's a full circle, huh? That's this amazing providence of God, and there's stories like that. But a disciple-making church is going to be a church that sends out our own. Fourthly and lastly, a disciple-making church trains the next generation. It trains the next generation. Verse 5, we, uh, we finish up. When they reached Salam- Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. The missionary journey that God called them to do, the work they called, took this missionary team, Barnabas and Saul, to the port city of Seleucia, down in a uh, little bit down along the coast, where they then got on a ship and sailed west to the island of Cyprus. And Salamis is a, a port city on that eastern side of Cyprus. Now, you think about it, why did they go there of all places, right? They could have gone, why didn't they go to north into Asia Minor? Why didn't they go east, go to, head out to, to Babylon or to Persia or to Assyria, you know, uh, east, uh, that, that direction? Why didn't they go south into, uh, towards into Egypt or, or Af- uh, greater North Africa? Instead, they went west. Well, if you remember Barnabas, who was, he's listed first, so he's leading this team, really, Barnabas, where did he come from? 
He was from Cyprus, right? He was a Cypriot. And so Salamis was probably his very own original hometown. And so we see then that God, and we see this just practically work out in the life of the church at times, that the Lord often uses our own backgrounds to enable us to make inroads, no more natural inroads, to reaching people. Right? If we say this church was led by the Lord, say we, we, we believe that a church needs to be planted in the middle of Kentucky. Okay? Anybody here from Kentucky? Okay, anybody ever lived in Kentucky? Anybody ever flew over Kentucky? Okay, all right. Anyways, nobody. Okay. Okay, there's... Anybody... Anyways, uh, living in the state next to Kentucky? Oh, okay. Anyways, normally, if we're going to reach Kentucky, what would we do? Would we send the uh, Asian gangster wannabe who was saved in the inner city neighborhoods of Seattle to reach the people in Kentucky? Why not? <laughs> That's great. I love that. That's a great inspirational speaker right there. Why not? Why not you? Okay. But maybe. But would it be more likely that someone who could make inroads in the people of Kentucky would be someone who actually has a concept of what Kentucky's like? I think Pastor Roger's been to Kentucky once. Right? So we send Pastor Roger there. That's what we do. If, you know, as the Lord leads, of course. So you get what I mean? And that's what God's doing with here with, with Barnabas and Saul. He sends them to Cyprus, first of all, because that's where Barnabas had relationships. That's probably where he was, he was where he grew up. He had friends there. He knew the community there. He knew the culture there. He would have been made more ready in Rhodes. He knew the, probably the synagogue leaders that were there. And so it was very natural for them to go preach there and proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. You notice that's what they do, right? The first thing they do when they make disciples, they go to this new place, this new work is... They proclaim the word of God. They preach the word of Jesus Christ. They proclaim, proclaim the gospel of salvation through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what they're doing. And notice they reach the Jews first. Why? Because the Jews were the most natural people who would respond to the message of the Messiah. Later on, of course, in the rest of the chapter, we know that they would expand their witness to Gentiles as well. They would even share the gospel with the proconsul uh, in the island, on the island. But their missionary activity, if we could summarize it, we could find a summary in Acts 14, 21, 23, that they basically preached the gospel, they made disciples, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, and then appointed leaders, elders, for them in every church. And while that's, uh, there's, it's instructive for us as mission, you know, as a mission, in terms of missions, I want to make an observation. Our observation really comes from the last part of verse 5. And they also had John as their helper, right? They also had John. It just seems kind of like an add-on, like, oh, oh, yeah, they also had John as their helper. But, of course, it's a scripture. And so it's a scripture, every word is inspired by God and there for a reason. And this, this phrase is there for a reason. For Barnabas and Saul took along John as their helper. Remember when God called to set aside people, he, didn't say, he said, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul and John. No, he didn't say that. He says that Barnabas and Saul only, right? He didn't tell them to take John along, but they decided to take John along with them. Was that disobedience? No, of course not. They had freedom of will to kind of choose for them with wisdom uh, who they might bring along. And so they decided to bring along John. In other places of Scripture, we, ne- we learn that he is Barnabas' cousin. He also has another name, Mark. 
And he had been uh, living in Jerusalem, but after Barnabas and Paul's visit in Acts 12, they decided to take along uh, Mark. They saw something in Mark. They said, there's something in him. We, we want to, uh, he was part of the church, and we want to train him up in what we do. So they brought him back to Antioch and to watch them, observe them, follow after them. But then when they were called, Barnabas and Saul called to the work, they decided to continue to take John along with them. They were devoted. They, they were committed to training up this young man to be the next generation of leaders. He, here was a young man they saw that would be involved in the work of God of proclaiming the gospel. And so they said, let's take him along. Just as Jesus would take along the, the 12 along with them wherever he went, and they watched his life, listened to his life, and watched and learned from him, so they took along John, who would listen to them and watch them and learn from them, be trained up to how to make disciples. Of course, if you know your Bibles and you know your book of Acts, sadly, uh, John Mark ditched them. <laughs> uh, by the time they end up on the eastern, western side of the island of Cyprus, John Mark, for whatever reason, cuts out. He goes back to Jerusalem, he leaves them, and they, they, like, they continue on their path, going into, entering into Asia Minor. So, John Mark, you know, they could have at that point said, you know, John Mark's flaky. You know, he's one of those flaky guys. He's, he's ghosted us, you know. He's, a, he's, a, he's not someone who's dependable. Let's not, let's not give him a second chance. And that was the debate that Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul had on, when they started the second missionary journey. And you know that. And by that time, the, the, the debate was so strong that Barnabas and Paul had to split ways. Barnabas took John Mark, he believed in John Mark, and he took him to Cyprus again. He started over, repeat, you know. And then Paul took along Silas and went elsewhere on his second missionary journey. See, Barnabas didn't give up on John Mark. He was a believer, and yes, he had failed, but he saw in him the potential to be a leader in the next generation. And it's significant, interesting because later in Paul's life, Mark does prove himself to be faithful and useful to Paul's ministry. In Colossians, the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, Colossians written when Paul was in prison, right? This is the end, end of Acts. Paul is in prison in Rome. And he writes several letters, the prison epistles, Colossians being one of them. And he writes this while in prison in Rome. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also, Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. What a powerful affirmation by the Apostle Paul of John Mark. He says, here in prison in Rome, these are the only three Jewish believers around me that have proven to be an encouragement to me in my imprisonment. And he calls Barnabas and when Barnabas comes, he, perhaps he's the one who sends Barnabas even to them. If he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him. Receive him. These are fellow workers for the kingdom of God. John Mark had risen in Paul's eyesight as a worker for the kingdom of God. Later on in 2 Timothy 4.11, at the end of Paul's life, he would write, to young Timothy and said, please send John Mark to me. He's useful to me. That's a great affirmation of a man who failed, blew it, 
But the Barnabas, men like Barnabas saw that now you failed about, you are a man, you're, because you're a child of God, you have potential to be trained up as a next generation, and he trained them up, raised them up, and he certainly was according to the scriptures. Of course, all of us know Mark's greatest contribution to the Bible is that he wrote for us the second gospel, didn't he not? We wouldn't have Mark if it were not for this guy, right? For Barnabas and Paul's commitment to him, and Peter's as well. Well, as, as the Bible continues to make disciples then, those of us who are older, here's some application, those of us who are more mature, those, who are, those of us who are in places of ministry leadership, particularly who are doing ministry, we must be intentional about bringing alongside younger disciples to train up to do the work. That's, just what, that's what we should be doing. We do that in our families, right? I teach, I'm eventually, at some point, I'm going to teach my boys how to hammer nails and, you know, use a hammer. I'm going to teach them how to take out the trash. I'm going to teach them how to do, learn things around the home. That's natural because they're going to have to do it one day. And then same goes with the church. We got to teach people how to pick up the hammers. We got to teach them how to proclaim Christ. We got to teach them how to teach Sunday school classes. We're going to bring, and the best way is to bring them alongside. Watch me as I do the work. I could teach you a class, but better if you just come watch me, come walk with me, observe me, and then I'm going to watch you as you do it, and then we're going to train you that way. That's, it's very, it's just like a family does it. See, disciple-making isn't just about doing the work of teaching others about Christ. It also necessitates training others to teach others about Christ, and every leader, really the whole church as a whole, must be mindful of training up the next generation. And if you think about the next generation, there's all the, about the, you know, 50 to 100 kids every, any given week that are down below us right now. The floor's below. Children's ministry. Many of you are teachers and workers there. I appreciate you so much because you're training up my kids too. But you know, that aside, that's the next generation. And even that, that's some of you can work with them. But I'm also looking around the room, some of you who are 20 and 30 years old. And I'm thinking about you guys. You guys are likely going to be the leaders of Christ's church, the elders and the pastors, the deacons, deaconesses that are going to be of this church in the future. And hopefully we are doing a job in training you up, giving you opportunity to do the work. Uh, you know, uh, all those of us that are older, I, can I speak to those of us who are older? As one who is older, I don't want to be kicked to the curb, okay? I don't want to be kicked here when time's up. You know, I don't want to be like kicked out, say, hey, we're done with you. You're too old to do this work. I know there will be a time when I'm too old to do the work, but I'm afraid that, you know, um, that maybe I'll, we're going to be useless. If you're a child of God, you're always going to be useful. And what we can do is we should not be afraid to raise up others. I love having the opportunity to raise up uh, and train up our fellow pastors in this church. There's now four of us in our English ministry even. All of them are capable preachers. And you notice in the pulpit, I've been intentionally sharing them, the pulpit with them because I believe that that's best for the church, right? It's best. For, we need to hear that the... The word of God can be taught by any gifted man. And it's not the, the man that makes this church successful. It's the word that is preached by the man. That's what builds Christ's church. And so it's all our ministry to, yes, we're afraid, but by training up others, we don't have to be kicked to the curb. We, we can learn to share the work of the ministry, share it. So that we're not doing that week in, week out, right? Oh, I love not having to preach every week in out. When it's not, turn, when it's not my turn to preach, I'm longing, man, we can get back in. But, you know, boy, when, it's, uh, when I'm preaching, it's like, oh, boy, I can't wait for somebody else to take this. I'm, I'm tired, exhausted. It's good to share the work, as we, especially as we get older. 
we don't, we're just not as strong as we used to be. We need to train up the next generation. Don't wait until we're dead. We leave the church and lurch. Because who's going to pass the church? Who's going to teach the Sunday school class? Who's going to fill the communion cups, you know, and whatnot? Who's going to work the AV? And this training up others is, is a principle we see in Scripture. It's reflected in the 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. With that, and then, then we conclude these four observations about the church in Antioch that encourage us to be a church that makes disciples. And I hope as we make disciples of Jesus Christ, that we fulfill our mission, that we keep in mind this vision that we would be a training and sending center for Christ's church. Some of you are here for a season, and we're glad for you, but I'm happy too because after a season, you're going to go back to probably your home churches, your hometowns. You're going to find careers and jobs in other cities, and we hope to be, have been a partner with you to send you out, equip you, and give you enough training to send you out to the other church where you can be a blessing and continue to proclaim Christ there and make disciples there. So let us be a disciple-making church that multiplies teachers, seeks God's will, sends out our own, and trains the next generation. A couple questions for us to leave, leave you with. Number Question number one, if we're going to be a training and sending center, we want to make sure that we ourselves are involved in making disciples of Jesus Christ. It starts there. That's the first thing. First things first, make disciples. Are we making disciples? We can't even be a training and center if we're not making disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's how are you involved? All of us need to be involved in making disciples in some way. Secondly, how do you seek the Lord's will in making disciples? Are, you know, as we're doing the work, are we just doing it just to be doing it? Just keeping ourselves busy? What, what, do, we, what do we believe that the Lord may be accomplishing in our purpose? We need to seek his will. And then thirdly, who are you training to do what you do in your ministry? That's just a great question. Who are you discipling to do what you, to replace you, to come alongside you, to share the work in the ministry? Um, and, uh, well, <laughs> that's it. Eventually, we, eventually we're going to send out our people. Our people are going to leave. Our, young, our younger generation will leave to go to other places probably eventually. And many of you will. And that's not that's normal. It's the course of a, of a church life. Um, but if we can share the ministry with you, share the ministry with you younger people so you can do the work and, be, and find that it's profitable here to be trained and, and feel ownership of this ministry Perhaps some of you will stay in the long, for the longer term and, uh, and be the next generation of leaders for Christ Church here in San Francisco in the generations to come. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for your truths. We, Lord, we thankful for the church in Antioch that exemplified a church that not only made disciples of Christ but had a, a vision towards your kingdom, be looking beyond themselves to reach out to other churches, to reach out to other peoples, even crossing the street to those who are different so that the gospel of Christ might come to bear upon the lives of all nations. We thank you for that church. We pray that even as we observe their, uh, who they were as a church, that, we'd, that these principles that you've, we've observed, that we might see them at work in this church. But Lord, we pray that whatever you will for us, you would accomplish and help us, but help us to be faithful to just make disciples of Christ to your glory until you call us home. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.